Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. EHIV Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Abbott Laboratories, Boehringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Today's program is a companion piece to our Volume 1, Issue 9 newsletter topic, Human Immunodeficiency Virus and Hepatitis C Virus Co-Infection. Our guest is that issue's author, Dr. Mark Sokowski from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, and other healthcare practitioners whose practice includes treating patients with HIV. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies and expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive, www.ehivreview.org, and click on the Issue 10 podcast link. Learning objectives are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to describe the epidemiology of hepatitis C infection in HIV-infected persons, including the role of sexual transmission of HCV, discuss the use of HCV NS34A protease inhibitors for the treatment of chronic HCV infection in HIV-infected persons, and explain the rationale for staging and methodologies used to stage HCV-related liver disease. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the HIV Review. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Sokowski, Professor of Medicine and Medical Director of the Viral Hepatitis Center, Division of Infectious Diseases and Gastroenterology Hepatology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Sokowski has disclosed that he's received grants and or research support from AbbVie, Inc., Walrigeringelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead, Janssen, Merck, Roche, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. He has also served as a consultant for Abbott, Bollinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., Bristol-Myers Squibb, Gilead, Janssen, Merck, Novartis, Roche, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. As no agents are currently indicated specifically for the treatment of hepatitis C in HIV-infected persons, his discussion of telaprevir and rosepravir should be considered off-label or unapproved usage of these drugs. Dr. Sulkowski, welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. Great. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Our topic is HIV, hepatitis C co-infection. In your newsletter issue, doctor, you discussed recent research into the sexual transmission of hepatitis C, the impact of HIV, HCV co-infection on mortality, and the treatment of hepatitis C in patients infected with HIV. I'm going to ask you to present us with a couple of patients to focus on how that information can best be applied in clinical practice. But first, I'd like to talk specifically about hepatitis C. Let's start with screening. The idea behind this disease is to identify patients early so that they can be screened and potentially treated. And one of the issues that we face in the United States and other parts of the world is that screening for hepatitis C has really lagged. And in part, that's because up until very recently, the criteria for screening were based on the clinician or a healthcare provider eliciting risk behaviors. In other words, the patient's primary care physician would have needed to elicit a history of injection drug use in order to know this patient qualified for screening. So based on this failure to identify infected people, the Centers for Disease Control has actually announced a plan to switch the screening criteria of hepatitis C to what's called birth cohort screening. And what this essentially means is that the so-called baby boomers, those born between 1945 and 1965, should have a hepatitis C screening test with the antibody done simply based on their year of birth. In other words, it's a shift away from this risk factor screening. What's known about the impact of hepatitis C on mortality? 
When one looks at the reason the CDC has announced plans to change how we look for hepatitis C, it's really based on data. And there was a publication recently in the Annals of Internal Medicine that focused on the impact in terms of cause of death. And one of the remarkable facts in this analysis, looking at U.S. death certificates, was that since 2007, more Americans have died from hepatitis C-related consequences than HIV. Now, the reasons for this are because of the high prevalence of hepatitis C. It's estimated between 4 and 5 million Americans are infected, the low rates of screening and diagnosis, and relatively ineffective treatments up until very recently. At the same time, there's been very effective efforts to screen for HIV, as well as the development of highly effective antiretroviral drugs. The net result has been that HIV deaths have fallen and hepatitis C deaths have continued to increase as Americans infected with this virus grow older. One of the important findings in this particular study was that hepatitis C deaths were higher in those with HIV co-infection and those who consumed alcohol. So we know that these are two factors that increase the risk of a hepatitis C-infected person progressing to cirrhosis and then the complications of cirrhosis. So we've learned that HIV co-infection is an important factor for us to focus on with respect to trying to eradicate hepatitis C. Another article in that same issue of Annals of Internal Medicine looked at the cost-effectiveness of hepatitis C screening, and the authors there noted that fully implemented birth cohort screening would likely identify over 800,000 new cases of HCV. So when a patient is newly diagnosed with hepatitis C, uh, what initial steps should the clinician take? Well, there's several important things that need to happen after a person is diagnosed. Now, the first thing is that that person becomes aware of their infection and the possibility of spreading it to other individuals. The spread is primarily through blood transmission, but they need to know how hepatitis C is transmitted and steps to prevent it. In addition, they need to know ways that they can prevent further damage to their liver. The first we've already touched on, which is alcohol. People with chronic hepatitis C infection should be advised not to consume any alcohol. It's a major risk factor in terms of progression of damage due to this particular virus. The second point, and one that's emerging, particularly here in the United States, is that they should achieve or maintain an ideal body mass index. What we're seeing is the impact of obesity on chronic hepatitis C. There's an additional hepatic insult, if you will in the form of steatosis or fatty liver. So people often ask me, well, what's the best diet for someone who's hepatitis C infected? And my answer is typically, it should be a diet that restricts calories because maintaining a normal body weight can help prevent further progression. Another point that's probably worth mentioning is the role of coffee intake. There's been a number of studies that have come out of the NIH that have actually suggested that coffee intake may be linked to lower risk of liver disease progression. So I talk to patients about this. It's unknown if this is a true impact, but this is a consistent finding across many studies. And the final point is that patients who are hepatitis C infected should consider hepatitis C treatment. Now, keep in mind, I did not say they should all be treated, but they need to be carefully evaluated for liver disease stage and at least discuss the potential benefits as well as risks of antiviral therapy for chronic hepatitis C. Dr. Zukowski, thank you for that background on hepatitis C. Now, let me ask you now to describe a patient with HIV hepatitis C co-infection, if you would please. 
This is a 38-year-old man who's been infected with HIV really since 1994 and more recently has been on antiretroviral therapy that's really done a fabulous job. He's been taking darunavir, boosted by ritonavir, tenofovir, and FTC with a recent CD4 cell count of 280 and an HIV RNA that's less than 20 copies per ml. Now, this individual had been tested for hepatitis C and had been negative. He does, however, have a history of drug use in the form of crystal methamphetamine and alcohol use. That had been relatively inactive for a period of time, but he came in for a routine clinic appointment and had laboratory testing drawn that revealed a serum ALT of 635 international units. Now, his prior ALT levels had all been 20 or less. They had been the normal range. So he was called back into the clinic and underwent some questioning about recent exposures. He did report a recent increase in his alcohol intake. He'd also had a brief relapse into crystal methamphetamine use and, importantly, had engaged in unprotected anal receptive intercourse with other HIV-infected men. So prior testing had revealed, as I mentioned, no evidence hepatitis C, no evidence hepatitis A or B, but now he presents with acute hepatitis. So based on that description, what are the possible causes of this patient's hepatitis? Well, this is a scenario that certainly warrants a careful evaluation. I think one of the first things is to consider, could this be due to alcohol or other hepatotoxins? And certainly that's taking a careful history. It's also important to consider, could this be acute hepatitis A or hepatitis B infection? Now, Paul's here to comment that it's important that patients with HIV are vaccinated against hepatitis A and B if they're not immune to prevent these infections. But certainly, a patient could present with acute hepatitis A or B. But this is really a classic story for sexually acquired hepatitis C infection among an HIV-infected man who is engaged in high-risk anal receptive intercourse. Now, this is something that's been increasingly recognized as a problem among this population. In general, hepatitis C is not felt to be a highly sexually transmitted virus, but in the context of HIV co-infection and traumatic sexual practices, we are now seeing around the world cases of acute hepatitis C in this patient population. So there have been some changes to current guidelines that actually recommend annual hepatitis C screening. But the reality of it is that most patients with acute hepatitis C in this fashion are picked up by an elevated serum ALT level. So this is a, a case that was recently highlighted by a report in the MMWR. So this is something that clinicians are increasingly aware of. How should this patient be evaluated by the clinician? Well, in terms of evaluation for acute hepatitis C, the important point to make is that in addition to a hepatitis C antibody, a hepatitis C RNA test should be done. The RNA will become detectable by PCR prior to the antibody seroconversion. So if you're thinking acute hepatitis C, you need to order an RNA test in order to look for that diagnosis. Now, once hepatitis C is identified, there needs to be a discussion about how to manage that patient. And some clinicians feel that an IL-28B test, which describes the patient's genetics, might also be helpful. Now, the reason is that people who have a favorable IL-28B genotype are more likely to resolve their hepatitis C spontaneously. 
So some clinicians have suggested there may be a role for this test. Others feel it's not particularly valuable, but that's a consideration. Now, the final point in terms of evaluation, if you've confidently identified acute hepatitis C, there really is no role for liver biopsy. I think if the diagnosis is still in question, then a biopsy may be important to determine the cause of liver injury. But if this is acute hepatitis C and you've identified that serologically and virologically, then you need to move on to management of the patient. Let's assume that the clinician confirms hepatitis C infection. Should this co-infected patient be treated at this point? And if so, how? Well, acute hepatitis C is important to identify because treatment is more successful if one intervenes during the acute phase, which is generally defined as within six months of the infection, as opposed to the chronic phase. Once the patient evolves to chronic hepatitis C, the responsiveness to interferon-based therapies appears to fall. Now, this desire to treat needs to be balanced against the idea that some patients will actually clear their hepatitis C spontaneously. Now, in HIV-infected patients, they are less likely to clear spontaneously because of the immunodeficiency from the HIV. So some individuals will test for IL-28B, and if they have a favorable clearance genotype identified, that is IL-28B-CC, they may observe the patient for several months to see if they spontaneously clear. Now, the Europeans have recommended to monitor the viral load over time, and if the viral load does not decline more than 2 log, then the patient is unlikely to clear spontaneously and they would offer treatment. So the bottom line is that most clinicians would recommend being fairly aggressive with antiviral therapy in acute hepatitis C in an HIV-infected individual. The general treatment is with pegylated interferon alpha given by injection once a week and ribavirin twice a day. And this is given typically for 24 weeks. There are no well-designed clinical trials. This is based on data from HIV-negative patients and some studies from those who are co-infected. I think one important point to make is that we'll discuss the hepatitis C protease inhibitors, tilaparin bocephavir, but at least in my mind, there's no role for protease inhibitors as the initial management strategy for acute hepatitis C. And that's because the virus is much more responsive to these interventions early during the acute process. And I typically would use peg interferon and ribavirin only adding one of the protease inhibitors if the patient fails to respond. The survey data have reported that some clinicians will tell a patient who has spontaneously cleared acute HCV that they're now immune to any further infections. Other survey data say some clinicians are telling their patients that they should be vaccinated against HCV. Your comments? Well, there certainly is a lot of confusion about viral hepatitis in vaccinations and immunity. I think it's worth spending a minute talking about this. Hepatitis A and B are both viral hepatitis pathogens that can be prevented by vaccination quite effectively. In addition, for those pathogens, once an individual is infected and clears the infection, they are protected against further infection. Unfortunately, hepatitis C is a different virus altogether. There is no protective immunity in most individuals. So a patient that is infected and spontaneously clears or clears their infection with antiviral treatment can be reinfected. So an important point is that all patients who are successfully treated or clear spontaneously know that they need to avoid potential exposures to this pathogen. Now, vaccine is also much more challenging 
And in many ways, this virus is more akin to the vaccination challenges of HIV. The virus is quite heterogeneous and has been difficult to battle with typical vaccine designs. Now, there are some very exciting prospects underway, but at this point in time, there is no vaccination against hepatitis C. And we'll return in a moment with Dr. Mark Sokowski from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Hello, I'm Michael Melia, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Associate Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program Director at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of EHIV Review. EHIV Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, and other healthcare practitioners whose work and practice includes treating HIV patients. Bi-monthly podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts, providing case-based scenarios to help bring that new clinical information into practice in the exam room and at the bedside. Subscription to eHIV Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each issue and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe and receive eHIV review without charge and access back issues, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. Welcome back to this eHIV review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, managing editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Mark Zulkowski, Medical Director of the Viral Hepatitis Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and our topic is HIV-HCV co-infection. We've been looking at how some of the new information Dr. Zulkowski discussed in his newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. Uh, so if you would, doctor, describe another patient for us. Well, the next patient I'd like to talk about is a patient with HIV and hepatitis C co-infection. Now, this is a 63-year-old woman with HIV that is well-controlled on a regimen of efavirin, tenofovir, and FTC. A CD4 cell count is outstanding at 756. HIV RNA is not detected. Now, this individual also has chronic hepatitis C that had been diagnosed previously and most likely acquired nearly 30 years ago through injection drug use. Now, she's been stable for quite some time and has been worked up to some degree by her primary HIV clinician. She has a serum ALT of 56, which is above the upper limit of the normal reference range, which is 40, and has been found to have hepatitis C genotype 1 subtype A. Now, this patient is fairly typical of many patients with co-infection. They're getting older and have had co-infection for a number of decades, in this case, nearly three decades. So the questions that we'll need to discuss is how to manage this patient. So my first management question. Would you consider this patient a candidate for HCV treatment? Well, I think the answer to that question is maybe. And the point I want to make is that all patients with HIV and hepatitis C are potentially candidates for antiviral therapy for hepatitis C. And again, that doesn't mean that we would treat every co-infected individual. But what it means is they need to be carefully evaluated to determine if they're eligible for current hepatitis C treatment. Now, that means taking a careful medical and psychiatric history to determine if there are any factors that make the patient a poor candidate for interferon-based therapy. For example, major depression that's poorly controlled may be a contraindication to interferon. 
At the same time, major depression that's well-controlled with medications is not a contraindication. So that requires a careful evaluation of the patient to determine whether or not they should be treated. In addition, this patient needs to know what the potential benefits are of successful treatment as well as what the potential risks are of current therapies in terms of side effects. So what I'm recommending is that co-infected patients have a consultation and discussion about their hepatitis C and their candidacy for treatment. Based on those considerations, should she be given HCV treatment now? Well, there's a number of factors that go into the question of should we treat this patient now? The first thing is to recognize that the current treatments include peg interferon given once a week, ribavirin pills given twice a day by mouth, and in some patients, hepatitis C protease inhibitors to lapvirobocephir, which are given by mouth thrice daily. These treatments can be effective in eradicating the disease, but they also have significant side effects as well as potential interactions with HIV medications. So in general, we need to understand this patient's risk of hepatitis C-related liver disease. So patients with hepatitis C may or may not have advanced scarring due to the hepatitis C virus. And the major question I want to know when sitting down with this patient is how much damage has been done by the hepatitis C virus over the 30 years of hepatitis C infection, the last 10 or so, which are co-infection with HIV. The degree of liver damage, that is fibrosis or scarring due to hepatitis C, predicts the likelihood that a patient will progress to liver failure, liver cancer, or liver-related death. In addition, we need to weigh that risk against the potential benefits and, and risk of therapy, as I already mentioned. So what I'd like to do with a patient like this is understand their liver disease stage. Now, the gold standard for staging liver disease is a liver biopsy. With this procedure, a small piece of liver is removed with a needle, and as we look at that in the pathology lab to measure the degree of fibrosis or scarring, and this can be staged on a zero to four scale, which is commonly used, four being cirrhosis and zero being no scar. And in general, people with stage zero have a fairly good prognosis, and those with stage three or four, more advanced scarring, are more likely to progress. Now, one of the challenges is that liver biopsy is an invasive test and typically may be difficult for patients to undergo. There is an intense interest in so-called non-invasive tests, which are both commercially available. There is a test available called FibroSure, and there are tests that are done on basic laboratory tests, including the AST platelet ratio index, which just requires an AST and platelet count. So, Clinicians can get a rough idea of the stage just by using blood tests. Now, there is a technology that's being used in Europe and other parts of the world called transient elastography or fibroscan that actually measures liver stiffness. And this can be done at the bedside and may someday be used in the United States as a way to stage fibrosis. But the important point getting back to this patient is we need to know her liver disease stage in order to counsel her about the potential benefits and risks of anti-HCV therapy. Talk to us about how liver disease staging influences hepatitis C treatment decisions. As I mentioned, liver disease staging is really critical. It's a bit like, let's take HIV as an example. For many years, as antiretroviral therapy was evolving, we used the CD4 cell count to stage the HIV disease. And for quite a long period of time, 
the recommendations from expert panels were to give antiretroviral therapy to those with low CD4 counts because of the increased risk of AIDS and death, whereas you would withhold therapy from those with high CD4 counts because of the risk of toxicity from the antiretroviral therapy. So if we take that model and apply it to hepatitis C, it's really the same scenario. In patients with no or minimal hepatic fibrosis, that is a relatively benign appearing liver biopsy or non-invasive test, it's important to discuss treatment with that patient, but we certainly know that there are novel therapies, so-called direct act antivirals, that are rapidly emerging in development, and many people would consider waiting for these newer treatments. For example, at a recent international scientific meeting, we saw data in HIV-negative patients with hepatitis C gene type 1 who were given essentially two direct-acting antiviral agents once a day for 24 weeks, leading to very high rates of virologic response. So there's great hope that within the next two, three, four, five years, we're going to have better therapies for these patients with minimal disease. So some clinicians recommend waiting in this patient group. On the other hand, for the patients that have more than minimal liver damage, waiting for these new treatments may not be the best prospect. Certainly, one of the issues is that these patients could progress, and these exciting future therapies may actually not come to fruition. We think they will, but they are still in the future. So in my view, patients who have more than minimal significant fibrosis, then we ought to consider treating those patients with current therapies, which as I've suggested are peginterferon, ribavirin, and consideration of use of telapavir or bocephavir. Thank you, doctor. I think we've got time for one more case, so uh, if you would please, bring us another patient. Well, the last case I'd like to talk about is that of a co-infected man. This is a 56-year-old man with well-controlled HIV infection, taking darunavir, ritonavir, tenofovir, and emtricitabine. He also has chronic hepatitis C, genotype 1, subtype B, and has cirrhosis identified on a liver biopsy. Now, he is fully compensated. He's never had ascites, encephalopathy, or bleeding varices, and his bilirubin and prothrombin time are all normal. He does have a slightly low platelet count, 98,000, but he is otherwise healthy and very anxious to do something to treat his hepatitis C. How should this patient be managed? Well, this is unfortunately an increasingly common scenario in our HIV hepatitis C co-infection clinic. As patients grow older with HIV and hepatitis C co-infection, some will progress to cirrhosis. Now, the first steps are really to screen this patient for hepatocellular carcinoma, and the recommendations are that he get a ultrasound or other liver imaging every six months. He should also be referred for, for endoscopy to look for esophageal varices and should be managed quite closely, perhaps in conjunction with a gastroenterologist or hepatologist. The finding of cirrhosis in an HIV-infected patient really identifies a patient at high risk for liver outcome. And then importantly, this patient has the potential to really benefit from successful hepatitis C treatment, and in my view, should be considered for aggressive antiviral therapy. Aggressive antiviral therapy. Would you recommend that for this patient at this time? Well, in terms of how to treat this patient, I think we've seen 
that the hepatitis C protease inhibitors, Clapper and Bocephavir, when added to peginiferin ribavirin, substantially increased the likelihood of sustained virologic response or cure. Now, these drugs were approved in the United States in May 2011 based on greater efficacy over therapy with peginiferin ribavirin. Now, in patients without HIV infection, these led to SVR rates in the ballpark of 65 to 75%. Now, this was about 30% better than peginiferin ribavirin alone. Now, these medications were linked to additional side effects. They cause a worsening of anemia for both tilapavir and bocephir, and tilapavir has been linked to a rash and a severe rash in about 4% of people who take the therapy. So they do add to the side effect profile. Now, one of the important issues is that when these drugs were reviewed by the U.S. FDA in the spring of 2011, there were no data on the use of these drugs in patients with HIV hepatitis C co-infection. So the initial approval does not include the use of these drugs in patients with co-infection. So in that sense, we've been really struggling to figure out how to use those. Importantly, in March of 2012, at the CROI meeting, there was a presentation of two relatively small phase two studies, one with tilapavir in combination with peginiferin and ribavirin, and the second with bocephavir in combination with peginiferin and ribavirin. Now, these studies were done in patients with well-controlled HIV and hepatitis C genotype 1 infection. The data presented at the CROI meeting in March of 2012 showed that the patients who got the active drug, that is tilapavir had a substantially higher likelihood of achieving SVR12, as it was called. These were about 30% higher than patients treated with peginiferin and ribavirin. So certainly, many clinicians left that meeting with the idea that these drugs do have a strong possibility of increasing the SVR rate in this very difficult-to-treat patient population. So there's been an increasing emphasis on their use. Now, there are some challenges. These include potential drug interactions with HIV therapies, as well as the cost. These medications are certainly expensive. The greater efficacy and acceptable tolerability has led some expert guidelines to recommend their use in co-infected patients. I'll continue on that point, if you would, about potential interactions with the antiretrovirals. As I mentioned briefly, both slapper and bocephavir are metabolized through the liver, and there are potential interactions with HIV protease inhibitors as well as other drugs used to treat HIV. So one of the important points I'd make is that it's critical that clinicians using these drugs in HIV-infected patients consult both the labeling for these medications as well as expert resources to make sure they're using drugs that are compatible with tilapia and bocephavir. This may sometimes be a challenge, but I think with careful consideration prior to treatment, many patients can have their HIV therapy adjusted to allow the use of these drugs. But it's critically important that these potential interactions be reviewed before initiating treatment. Uh, thank you for those cases, doctor. I'd like to review now what we've discussed today. Our first point, the epidemiology of hepatitis C infection in HIV-infected persons. Well, we talked about several important points. The first is that hepatitis C is a common pathogen in those with HIV, and it's actually leading to more deaths in the United States than HIV infection. So it's an important pathogen to pay attention to in this population. 
We also focused on the emerging data on sexually transmitted hepatitis C among men who have sex with men. And this is an important point for clinicians who care for HIV-infected patients to be aware that in this population, hepatitis C is a sexually transmitted disease. And the use of the protease inhibitors for the treatment of chronic hepatitis C in HIV-infected persons. Well, the first point to make with respect to the use of protease inhibitors is that these are not FDA-approved for use in HIV-infected persons. That said, in March of 2012, we saw compelling data for the use of telapavir and bocephavir in combination with peginiferin and ribavirin in carefully selected co-infected patients. So I think many clinicians and expert guidelines are making cautious recommendations for the use of these drugs simply based on the fact that the sustained virologic response rates are substantially higher. More studies are needed, but patients can benefit from these therapies today. Uh, And finally, staging HCV-related liver disease, the rationale for it, and the methodologies that can be used. Well, one of the critical points that we discussed is in terms of which patients to treat with these protease inhibitors in combination with peginiferin and ribavirin is really based on hepatitis C-related liver disease stage. So one of the points that we highlight in our cases is the need to understand the disease that hepatitis C is causing. That's routinely done by liver biopsy, but increasingly we're using other modalities to evaluate staging, including non-invasive blood tests, and potentially in the future, a test called transient elastography. But the important point is when considering medications like telapavir and bocephavir, one really needs to understand the potential risks and benefits of therapy. And to do that, you need to understand the liver disease stage. Dr. Mark Sokowski from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV review podcast. Well, thanks, Bob. It's been a lot of fun talking about the challenges of hepatitis C and HIV-infected patients. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Abbott Laboratories, Bollinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Thank you for listening. This program is copyright 2013 with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.